It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist. And this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show... Bezos versus the National Enquirer, what we know. In about a little over a thousand words, he managed to weave a tale of intrigue where they have threatened to publish these photos unless he seizes and desists from his investigation of them. And how powerful can employee surveys be? On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd put it as a 10, as in Sherlock Holmes's detective skills, as opposed to a 1, as in Boris Johnson's fact-checking skills. But first, on January the 9th, the National Enquirer announced they were going to publish an expose of an extramarital affair involving the world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, boss of Amazon. It looked like a familiar tabloid sting. But then it took an interesting turn. Mr Bezos decided to fight back. He's accused David Pecker, boss of American Media, the firm that publishes the National Enquirer and other tabloids, of conspiring to blackmail him over some intimate photographs. Gadi Epstein, The Economist's media editor, is here to explain all. Hello, Gadi. Hello, Simon. Gadi, it's become quite a convoluted tale, this. Can you, can you help us just pick our way through it with the, the bare bones of what's happened so far? Uh, right. You've got where it starts with the National Enquirer saying that they had uh, followed Bezos around for some months and that they had explosive texts and photos, which they then published a few weeks ago. And then last week, Jeff Bezos put this blockbuster post online on Medium. In about a little over a thousand words, he managed to weave a tale of intrigue uh, where they have threatened to publish these photos unless he kind of seizes and desists from his investigation of them and suggests publicly that there was no political motivation or any other kind of sort of external forces behind what the National Enquirer had done. In doing this, he kind of raised the specter of possible involvement by, by Saudi Arabia by the White House, by Donald Trump, who's a close friend of David Pecker, who runs American media. And it was quite a tale of intrigue, but but without any sort of uh, smoking gun other than just the explicit threat itself in the emails that he published, uh, in which they clearly wanted him to back off. And he's raised the question of, well, why would they want that? And he put in his post this insinuation that... They were particularly, uh, actually used the word apoplectic about uh, David Pecker, uh, particularly apoplectic about Saudi Arabia, the link to Saudi Arabia. Now, of course, this could be because there is no link and they are upset about that, or it could be because there is one. That's, that's sort of the question, one of the questions, one of the many questions Jeff Bezos' post raises. I mean, why is that such a sensitive point for, for, for American media and its boss? Well, that is really the, that is really the question. And, and, of course, from their point of view, they claim it's because it's defamatory. So Elkin Abramowitz, the lawyer for 
uh, David Pecker. He went on TV on Sunday on, on ABC News uh, here in America uh, and said, this is not extortion, this is not blackmail, this is just journalism. We went ahead and reported about him and then they, meaning Jeff Bezos um, and the security consultant he hired, Gavin DeBecker, who is kind of a famous uh, security consultant to the stars and to, you know, to big powerhouse celebrities and that ilk, he says they went after uh, National Enquirer and AMI uh, looking to uh, tarry them with uh, this kind of links to Saudi Arabia, to Donald Trump, and that, that there was something nefarious behind the reporting. So he claims that this is just negotiating with Jeff Bezos to drop all that, and then they won't publish any more photos. So he's claiming it's not blackmail. Another wrinkle of this that has emerged uh, in the last few days is reporting uh, by the Daily Beast that points the finger at the brother of, of Jeff Bezos's paramour, Michael Sanchez. And supposedly, Michael Sanchez is quite a, a fan of Trump, a friend of Roger Stone. Uh, and uh, there is the suggestion that this is politically motivated in that sense. Now, Fox News reports this morning that Lauren Sanchez, uh, the paramour, had herself shared some texts uh, with some of her friends, uh, which raises the question of whether that could have been a, an avenue for uh, the leak to the, to the National Enquirer. So the mystery deepens. Returning for a moment to um, Mr. Pecker's alleged apoplexy, why is the suggestion of Saudi involvement so toxic to him? I mean, there's some suggestion, isn't there, that it might have to do with National Enquirer's need to raise funds. David Pecker has had dealings with Saudi Arabia. Early last year, he sought uh, their help, reportedly, to make an offer for Time magazine. That didn't come to pass. And AMI uh, also, and then a couple months later, published when Prince uh, Mohammed visited the U.S., a glossy special publication that read like a propaganda sheet uh, for Saudi Arabia. So there are some connections between AMI and Saudi Arabia. Mohammed bin Salman, MBS in Saudi Arabia, has been accused of uh, directing the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a Washington Post columnist. And Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. So that's one side of this uh, issue. And it's it's toxic for anybody to be connected to uh, Saudi Arabian um, investment or money uh, from the crown prince at this time, especially because of that. Now, Prince Mohammed has uh, denied this, and the Saudi Arabian regime has lashed back at anybody who makes this suggestion that the leadership was involved uh, in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and they have uh, rounded up suspects who they say committed this crime uh, without the direction of Prince Mohammed. Gadi, thank you. Next, today across the West, nearly all jobs are open to both sexes. This more efficient use of talent has brought gains for individuals, businesses and national economies. But in fact, most sex-based integration took place in the 1970s and 80s, and mostly in white-collar jobs. Since then, progress has largely stalled, and there are still wide differences in the jobs men and women take. To discuss this, I'm joined by Sasha Nauter, The Economist's public policy editor. Hello, Sasha. Hi. So we're saying there are still pink and blue jobs, as it were. 
I mean, how, how stark is the divide? Well, as you mentioned, things are obviously better than they were before the 70s when women just weren't as represented in the labor force as they are today. But after quite a lot of mixing of jobs in the 70s and 80s, progress has slowed a lot, actually, and not just in the really obvious occupations you might think of, like really, you know, burly physical work and perhaps the more caring professions that women are overrepresented in. To give you a few numbers, in, in, in Europe, in the European Union, seven in 10 women still work predominantly with women. So in an occupation that is at least 60% female, in, in Germany, a, a fairly conservative country when it comes to gender norms, 70% of men work in jobs that are at least 70% male. So again, men and women are still very much divided in, as we call them, pink and blue jobs. And I guess there's a there's a question some people have of, well, maybe this is a bit of a status quo. Maybe this is a natural equilibrium we're reaching. And others who think, well, actually, no, this is a sign of a, of a deeper problem. Indeed. I guess the, the key question is why this has happened. I mean, was it an, a natural process that just reached its end? Or do, does anybody have a clear idea of why progress stopped after the 1980s? Well, it, it depends on who you ask. You could say that in the 70s and 80s, the, the low-hanging fruit was picked, so to speak. So simply by entering the labour force, jobs became more integrated by definition. And since the 80s, it's the harder work, right? Getting women into occupations that have been known to be very male for whatever reason, either because they are physical or because they just are, you know, like surgery, for example, they've they've just got quite a macho culture. There's two theories here. The one is that women simply have different preferences and talents than men. Some would argue I'd be very careful with using this phrase, but, you know, you have pink brains and blue brains, and that means there are different talents and preferences. The other is to say, well, actually, the stagnation we're seeing is a sign of, of barriers, both to men entering so-called pink jobs as well as to women entering so-called blue jobs. And my own sense would be that it's probably more in the latter camp that explains the stagnation, which is not to say that every job should become 50-50, but there's so much still sort of standing in the way of open access to every occupation. Indeed. It's purely an anecdotal impression I have, but it sometimes seems to make news when a woman starts doing a job in the army, for example, in special forces or something that has hitherto been primarily or exclusively male. You very rarely hear of men who are doing jobs that have always been women's. Is that right? Absolutely. A lot of campaigns for engineering and mathematics and tech jobs have been all about how do you bring women in. We haven't quite seen the same for getting men into childcare or nursing, both occupations that, never mind what you might think of, of, of mixing genders, have got shortages all over the world. So it would be very good if a lot more was done to try to encourage and again celebrate men who enter those, those jobs. There's another aspect to all this, of course, which is money, in that historically men have earned more than women and still do. How much is that a factor in in determining which professions they go into? I don't know how much it's a factor in determining which professions they go into, although there are pretty good indications that men, particularly fathers, are more led by salary than, than, say, mothers. But what we do know is that, again, if we look at how much does this segregation of the sexes in occupations matter. Well, pay is one of the most obvious ones to look at, precisely because on the one hand, we see women going into occupations that are on average lower paid per hour than the types of male 
dominated occupation. So that alone is sort of, in quotation marks, a, a poor choice, regardless of what is leading that choice. But secondly, we've seen as occupations that were dominated by men have become dominated by women, for example, uh, designers, housekeepers, biologists, I think FETs might be one as well, wages have relatively fallen. So there's a question there whether once a job is seen as pink or women-dominated, does society or the economy or whatever start to value it less? That's very interesting. So I suppose one prescription for turning all jobs purple would be to make sure men and women are paid the same amount for the same job. Do you you have others, other ideas as to how to get rid of this imbalance? Well, a very easy one, but this is not original, is education. Ensuring that boys and girls, whether it's in preschool or in in high school, are given the same opportunities. And we know, for example, I, I always think Computer programming is quite a good example there, where we know that young girls have very similar interests in it to young boys, but then something seems to happen in high school that turns them away from it. And people who know much more about this than I do say, well, it it also has to do with how we teach these kind of subjects. So thinking more about how you ensure that all these different subjects are relatable to both boys and girls in schools, I think is a really obvious one. The other one is more creative recruiting. So we've been talking quite a bit about, you know, as people enter the labour market, but of course people change jobs once they're in the labour market as well. And amongst the more interesting conversations I've had as I've been working on this article was with a mining firm who, for two reasons, wanted to recruit more women. Firstly, because they had a shortage of, of skilled workers and were thinking ahead of the future. But secondly, because they saw a lot of benefits, uh, both for safety as well as for productivity, of having a more diverse, mixed um, workforce. And their head of HR said, well, one of the key things we've done is we've stopped just looking for people with 25 years of mining experience, because if you look for them, you will only find men. Whereas if you move away from that and say, actually, what we need is people who can deal with, you know, stressful situations, who have got some skills and problem solving, blah, 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 blah. You can look much more broadly. So say they started looking in healthcare, in emergency services, all sorts of, I think, in music as well. All sorts of places you wouldn't normally search to find the types of skills that fit your workforce. And you could imagine that once employers sort of broaden their minds a little bit beyond sort of we need somebody with X years of experience in exactly this type of job, you're also more likely again to get both genders into the workforce. So we've got pay, education, recruitment, anything else? Flexibility. So pharmacists are often the golden example given of an occupation that sort of made it all the way. There's no pay gap there anymore. It's very equal in terms of representation of men and women. And one of the things that occupation has really done well is it's managed to make itself flexible enough so that you can do it three days a week, four days a week, five days a week, hand over to the next person. It's very digitalized and it's very easy to hand over without there being any friction. So there's no punishment for anybody who wants flexibilities as as parents, particularly mothers, often do. So I think... The lesson to learn there is that an employer, but also just more broadly an occupation that is able to incorporate some form of flexibility into the way the job's done, sets itself up to a lot more success on this standard. Sasha, thank you very much. Thanks. And finally, on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you with your work? Agree or disagree? Teamwork is encouraged and practised in your organisation. 
And lastly, how likely are you to receive recognition from your manager? Employee surveys have been around for a hundred years, but are seen today as hugely useful and a popular way to measure how happy your employees are. They're a kind of barometer of how you're doing as a firm. Philip Coggan writes the Bartleby column for The Economist and has been looking at the use of these surveys. Hello, Phil. Hello, Simon. Well, on a scale of one to ten, how useful are they? Well, uh, that's a very good question. In fact, Simon, on a scale of one to ten, I'd put it as a ten, as in Sherlock Holmes's detective skills, as opposed to a one, as in Boris Johnson's fact-checking skills. <laughs> a lot of these surveys do go on. About three quarters of the big U.S. companies practice them, and the reason they do that is because they're after this wonderful thing, this sort of secret source called employee engagement. And tests show that employee engagement has a positive correlation with productivity, profitability, and employee retention, and even safety for employees. So this is a really vital thing if they can capture it. Can I ask one basic and possibly very silly question about these? Is Do people trust them? I mean, we don't have them here at The Economist, or we have, I haven't noticed them. But if they did, I would be slightly worried that my boss was going to be reading what I said. I think there is a worry. I talked to one company and they said that new employees tend to be very suspicious of them, but they've been doing them for 20 years. This is Alliance Status, a company out in Texas, and they have a 92% response rate. So I think if people believe that what they say will be acted upon, and the point of these surveys is not really just to ask whether you're happy with a company, but usually they focus on particular issues and whether things need to change or whether you know one department is less happy than another and if you have the these surveys and they show that there's a particular problem and the company goes out there and changes things so at alliance data they found that new managers were dragging down the average of all managers for their success and so they went out and changed the training of new managers and now new managers have improved dramatically so i think over time, if you see the management responding to the survey answers, then they're successful. If these surveys have been around for 100 years, don't companies already know what they ought to be doing? Well, they should know. And the best companies, which probably have all sorts of other schemes that try and encourage employees' engagement and motivation, they probably score very well on the surveys. The real trick is in the bad companies that are doing something wrong, but they don't know what they're doing wrong. So Tolstoy had the old quip about families, all happy families are the same. Unhappy families are unhappy in a particular way. Unhappy companies are unhappy in a particular way. And if you don't know quite what's going wrong, is it the managers? Is it the incentives? Is it the hours or whatever? Then employee surveys can be useful. But obviously, they're not a cure-all. Probably if you don't have any idea what's going wrong in your company, you probably ought to fire yourself rather than the employees. And indeed, if you are a bad company, you're probably not about to ask your employees. No, but you know, if you come in, if you're a new manager at what is a previously a bad company, it's probably a good place to start. Phil, thank you very much. And on a scale of one to ten, how are the questions? Eleven. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like our journalism, why not try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs> <laughs>